Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 15th, 2022. Uh, it's a Monday. It's the beginning of the week. And we are this week uh, commemorating the one year anniversary of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, Times has a very depressing essay, Afghanistan one year after the fall from yesterday. Uh, according to the Post, celebration, uncertainty and fear grip Kabul a year after the Americans left. Um, uh, NBC agrees in part. Certainly fear is there. They also say violence and hunger. Much of this is a consequence, of course, of the American withdrawal. Uh, one top GOP lawmaker suggested that the U.S. had no plan for the evacuation of Afghanistan. I think that was fairly self-evident, although the White House has, again, not surprisingly, responded, suggesting they did have a plan. If they did have one, it seemed to be very good. Um, we've done a number of shows. Last week, I did one with Elliot Ackerman, a wonderful writer, uh, on uh, the withdrawal. Uh, he, he takes the long view. He writes about uh, the fifth act, America's end in Afghanistan, a series of tragic acts culminating in the withdrawal. We also did a personal show last week with Major Tom Schumann and Zainullah Zaki, an American serviceman, an American Marine, and an Afghan translator. Very moving story called Always Faithful, which I think they're making into a movie. It's very troubling, very emotional stuff. I wrote an essay on it myself last week, how we remember and how we forget America's tragic uh, mistake in Afghanistan. It was, of course, or it remains a true tragedy, and we're going to continue talking about it today. Uh, my guest is a former serviceman, uh, Christopher D. Uh, Collender, and he's the author of a number of books, including Zero Sum Victory, What We're Getting Wrong About War. He's joining me from, with, uh, from, from um, Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin today, Chris. Uh, I want to talk more about your ideas on leadership, your institute, and your writing. But first of all, perhaps you might tell us very briefly your story of where and how you serve. Uh, thank you, Andrew. It's a delight to be here on your program. I wish the circumstances were a bit different. Uh, this being the one-year anniversary, as you mentioned, of the, of the fall of Kabul, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, uh, 2007, 2008, for 15 months. I was a task force commander in, in the eastern Afghanistan. So there were about 800 paratroopers in our unit, and uh, I, was the, I was the leader of them. Um, Jake Tapper writes about us in his best-selling book, The Outpost. And to my knowledge, it was the only example of the during our deployment anyway, of a large insurgent group uh, or a unit motivating a large insurgent group to stop fighting um, and, and switch sides. And they fought the Taliban right up to the very end. Um, I, I then served as a senior advisor to Generals McChrystal, Petraeus, and Dunford in subsequent deployments to Afghanistan. 
And when I was not in Afghanistan, but back in the Pentagon, I was the Secretary of Defense's personal representative in the talks that we had with the Taliban from 2011 to 2013. I hope, Chris, when you were in the Pentagon, you wore that very colorful outfit. Well, so yeah, this is my second. But, but, but just yeah. listen, Chris, you'd expect an old serviceman like Chris to be dressed in gray, but he's actually dressed in a very cool bike suit. You're going to talk about your uh, your honor ride, but uh, you're a bit of a biker as well, Chris, right? Well, I, I started a year ago, a little over a year ago. Um, six of my paratroopers were killed in action in Afghanistan. Uh, their names are, yeah, right there, David Boris, uh, Tom Bostic, Ryan Fritchie, Adrian Hike, Jacob Lowell, and Chris Pfeiffer. And I, I've wanted to do something special to honor their service and sacrifice. And so I decided that uh, driving driving to their graves would be too lame. I couldn't walk it in a reasonable amount of time. So I said, I'm going to bicycle it. So I bought a bicycle. I hired a cycling coach and I started telling people so they don't check it out. So we're about one month from the start of the Fallen Hero Honor Ride. And the uh, Honor Ride is going to raise funds for the Sabre 6 Foundation, which um, helps my unit's veterans and families uh, recover from the psychological injuries that we sustain in combat and to build, uh, to build new dreams, build, uh, build their version of the American dream. So it's a, it's a noble thing, um, Chris, and maybe at the end of the show, you can talk about how viewers and listeners can, can contribute, but let's talk more broadly about Afghanistan. You were there, you experienced it. Some of your colleagues were killed. They sacrificed their lives. Um, I know you listened to the show from Ackerman, his fifth act, as well as the, uh, the, sh the, the major Tom, uh, Zaki show. My sense with both, all three of these men, they were all, well, two of them were American servicemen. One was an Afghan interpreter working for the Americans. They all feel profoundly betrayed by political leadership, not just Biden, not just Bush every administration really over the last 20 years. Do you share that? Well, the United States has made a lot of unforced errors and own goals in Afghanistan. Uh, when you think about it in 2001, the Taliban offered to surrender and we said no. In 2003 and four, they offered I again. I want to jump in, Chris. Is that uh, acknowledged? Is that a, Everybody knows that because that's not something that I'm and I, I'm not an expert in this area. Is this right. something that everyone would accept that they agreed to surrender? And what were the terms of that surrender? Yeah, there was a there was a press conference between Donald Rumsfeld and Hamid Karzai, it's December 6th or December 7th of 2001. Uh, so the New York Times reported it. Um, and basically it was Karzai and his his people negotiating with the Taliban's uh, side where the, the rough outlines, of the agreement where they would surrender the last four provinces that they, that they controlled, um, in Southern Afghanistan, and they would support the new government in exchange for being able to live in peace. And, um, and you could see in the, in the press conference, the, um, secretary Rumsfeld's response to that, um, in 2003 and four, well, the is that, mm. so I assume Rumsfeld, told them where to take that. Is that because right. 
Chris, um, I don't think Rumsfeld is no longer around to defend himself. He doesn't have a lot of friends. Is that because basically everybody, in particular Bush, um, confused the Taliban and Al Qaeda? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you know, you can you can understand this sentiment. I mean, this is now less than two months from 9-11. So it would have taken an act of considerable political courage. Uh, but also um, it would have taken disentangling, recognizing up front that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were not the same. And we assume that they were the same until at least 2009. And also it would well, have had jumping a... in again, and I'm not I'm sure. far from being an expert, but it seemed to me at the time it was obvious. I mean, the Taliban was the government, Al Qaeda were operating within a relatively anarchic, stateless environment. I'm sure that they they may have been friendly, they may have had relations, but they clearly weren't the same thing. No, but we had a very cartoonish view of this relationship. And and you remember the if you're not with us, you're against us. Um, you know, we tend to, we're in a phase where we're just aggregating these enemies. There's, you know, all enemies in sight and, um, you know, pick and, you know, pick and choose. And, and, and if you don't choose with us, then, you know, we're, we're coming to get you. And, and so part of that logic led to Iraq, part of that logic led to all sorts of uh, threat inflation across the globe. And quite frankly, it also, uh, initiated a cottage industry of, uh, you know, the defense, uh, you know, knowledge complex or uh, knowledge industrial complex where you've Which, got all uh, to be fair, of- you're part of Chris, you have your own uh, uh, Kalenka uh, strategic um, leadership academy. So you're not, uh, you're involved with that too. Well, it's, uh, I, I do, I help solo entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their dreams. So um, it's a, I've, I've, uh, I do something else than uh, being in the national security space. Um, although I do write books like Zero Sum Victory, but I don't get involved in threat aggregation and, uh, you know, and, and that sort of thing, which and I think- also wrote a leadership, the warriors are. We, I'm not being critical. Anyway, go on, sorry. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all good. Um, yeah, I, I think threat inflation can be a very dangerous thing. Um, and I think folks ought to be on the watch out for it. So coming back to my original question, you, you're well networked, you're, you're doing this on a ride, you have a lot of uh, communication still with former servicemen. How deeply let down do they feel? We, we did a show on Iraq with Ruben Gallegos, an Arizona uh, senator, uh, Arizona um, uh, uh, politician, um, mm. House of Representatives, he wrote a book they call this Lucky, The Life and Afterlife of the Iraq War's Hardest Hit Unit. Uh, we also did a show with Jason Kander, another former serviceman, um, on his experience, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Everyone I talk to on this show, every former serviceman, and my sense is they just feel so deeply let down, not just by the politicians, but by a country that for the, for the most part remains indifferent to their experience. Yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, let down on a lot of levels. Uh, certainly as I write about in zero sum victory, we made just a whole host of unforced errors and own goals throughout this conflict. 
Um, I, I think, you know, culminating, of course, in this disaster a year ago, I think also it's important to bear in mind is as much as we need to do introspection, we need to, when you look at the track record since Vietnam of American military interventions, it is unenviable. And what disturbs me and really troubles me is that you don't hear any senior political leaders from either party in the United States talking about national security reform, talking about what we need to do differently so we don't send Americans into harm's way and have them turn into one fiasco after another. That is unacceptable. That needs to change. Um, so we need to do that introspection. At the same time, it's important to recognize that there is only one entity that could have gotten buy-in from the Afghan people. And that was the Afghan government. And instead of trying to gain the buy-in of the people, um, they turned themselves into a corrupt, predatory, kleptocratic government, so literally government of thieves, and spent their time robbing and abusing the population, so much so that by 2001, the Afghan people were so disgusted with their government that they voted with their feet to support the Taliban. And then, of course, the senior Afghan officials uh, just seemed to take the money and run. How much responsibility, though, of this kleptocracy in Afghanistan can we put with the Americans who were supposedly supporting them or put them in power in the first place? Well, yeah, again, it's, uh, you know, it's there, there's a lot of blame to go around. So you had Afghan officials, Afghan, you know, that uh, made these choices. I mean, Afghan senior government positions were for sale for exorbitant prices. And, and then the expectation was that you'd be able to use your, your position, your official position to make the money back, whether it's engaging in the, you know, the opium trade, black market economy, um, you know, siphoning off our international aid and development dollars and uh, sicking international forces on their personal and political rivals. So, so that was going on. Uh, but when we began to recognize this um, this kleptocracy, you know, at, at an industrial scale, we didn't know what to do about it, um, and and so there was a there was a level of complacency there, and a level of uh, just simply enabling where we just didn't want to take a hard um, hard stance on this. We didn't know how to do that, and and so it just kept it just kept going, and uh, and the worse it got, the more we seemed to you know. Uh, enable it. And then the, uh, the Afghan government would create these shambolic task forces about anti-corruption. And, um, and, and so we, we need a much better expert body of knowledge for how to wage wars and for how to deal with partners that become that corrupt. Because once they become that corrupt, you're trapped. Same thing happened in Vietnam. Same thing happened in Iraq happens in, in Afghanistan in a, you know, industrial scale. We also did a show, and I, and I know you listened to this, uh, I thought it was a good one, with Phil Clay, another important ex-soldier, uncertain ground, citizenship in an age of endless invisible war. Chris, do you think one of the reasons why the American public remains so ignorant and indifferent 
to what was happening in Iraq or Afghanistan was because so few of their kids are actually in the military that you chose to be in it. You have a professional, right. I don't know what you would call them an elite, but a professional group of people fighting like yourself. And most people have no association, no knowledge. Um, so it always remains at best a, a footnote to, um, to, to, to the public sphere in this country, to media, to conversation, to politics. Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, professional military is a double-edged sword, right? Um, you know, all volunteer forces is a, is a, is a double-edged sword. Um, it, you can mix them. You can have guys like you putting guys like me into shape. Yeah, the, the, there are some some ways to to mix these things. We've we've chosen to go all volunteer, which creates a highly trained, highly capable force, but it's a very small one. And and so you go to war, for instance, like we have the last uh, twenty years, and you have a very small proportion of the population bearing that bearing that cost. Um, and and so there becomes very little political accountability for uh, sending people to war and the fact that we've had a authorization of, of uh, the use of military force that's been like in force since 2001 is absurd. The fact that Congress never asks hard questions to the administration, um, you know, is, is utterly absurd. And, and so these wars just sort of take on a, a life of their own and, and, and it's borne by a very small percentage of the population. And, then, lie, and as you say, with, this is not just uh, working hard. These people are paying with their lives. You, you, you wear their names on the back of your bike jacket. Um, Chris, what about um, the connection between these catastrophic foreign wars of the last 20 years, Afghanistan and Iraq, and the crisis of American democracy? Of course, we seem to blame everything on Donald Trump, which is very convenient, and his clique within the Republican Party. But do you think there's a broader issue of the problems, the crisis, the weakness of democracy in America, and this unaccountability of these endless, uh, catastrophic, tragic foreign wars? Well, I, I think these catastrophic uh, wars that have, I mean, they cost the American taxpayer alone about $4 trillion. Um, you know, over 7,000 American service members killed in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, tens of thousands wounded. I mean, you don't go into combat. I mean, combat where you're killing and, and seeing friends get killed and, and wounded. You don't come out of that without some sort of psychological wounds and injuries. And, you know, I've got them. So does everybody else who's, who's, um, you know, face those sort of circumstances. Um, so I, you know, people have lost faith in, in, in our experts and our elites for, uh, you know, for these kind of military fiascos, the 2008 financial crisis, housing crisis, you know, all of these things, um, you know, have created a lack of faith. Well, in, in yeah, I mean, but government. Chris, you know, shit happens. You, you have economic crises, but you don't mm. have this endless backdrop of war. Let's talk about your interest in leadership. As you suggested, you have an mm. institute um, helping leaders, wanting to create powerful teams. Um, you've written a book, uh, Leadership, the Warrior's Art. 
what can we learn from ex-military guys like you about leadership? It seems as if, particularly in terms of Bush, that there was an absence of leadership, which got us into these catastrophic wars in the first place. Well, there was poor decision making. Um, which is what poor leadership is about. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's certainly part of it. Um, you know, you, you see the images of, of uh, President Bush, you know, rallying people after after 2001. Um, yeah, I, I remember those days very well. And, um, you know, he did a he did a, a very good job, uh, you know, rallying people after that. Now, some of the decisions, you know, a lot of the decisions when you look at, you know, the Iraq invasion, for instance, um, and some of our decisions about Afghanistan, or a number of them, were, were really problematic. But I, I think getting back to your your question, you know, we we've kind of, due to lack of faith in our institutions, we've kind of retreated to to these silos, to these extremes. There's been a retreat to the extremes, and I think what what's needed in America is 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 an advance to the center, um, you know, led by good people who um, you know are willing to have their, um, you know, willing to, to listen to the other side um, and to recognize that people with different points of view, you know, those, you may not agree with them, but it doesn't mean they're bad people. What can we learn? I and mean, we've talked about this subject endlessly. Sometimes I joke that when in, in this idealization of the center, Ann Richards, the former governor of Texas, famously said, famously said the only thing in the center of the road in Texas is roadkill. Um, and it's an ongoing debate. We've done many shows on the politics of the center. We did one a couple of weeks ago with uh, the founder of No Labels. What can military guys like you, ex-military people, teach us about rebuilding the center, whatever that means, the center? Uh, we all know kind of what mm -hmm. it means. But what, what particular skills do you bring or what would ex-military people bring to help us fight these extremes? Empathy. You know, empathy is your shortcut to cooperation. Wow, um, empathy, the E word, yeah. Chris. We've done a number of shows on that too, particularly with right. uh, female uh, writers like Susan McKenzie Brady on leadership. What is it about male uh, military guys like you that can help us understand empathy? Well, I just, uh, I remember back in Afghanistan, um, you know, in 2007, we were getting rocket attacks from the east side of the Kunar River. And it was this remote valley that, you know, we couldn't get to except by helicopter. And we had no idea why they're shooting rockets at us. They'd shot rockets at their predecessors and now they're shooting them at us. And it started, uh, you know, wounded a couple of folks and I, yeah, I was getting pretty fed up with it. And so I've got my brain trust together and said, what do we do about this? And, and my, my Afghan army counterpart, a guy named, uh, you know, Sheramad said, why don't we go talk to him? I was like, well, that's, that's a great idea. And his, his vehicles could, could get into that Valley. And so we put together an operation and, and he went there, stayed all day came back and, and I said, what'd you find out? And he said, yeah, they're, they're the ones, you know, allowing rockets to be shot at you from their territory. I said, okay, uh, why is that? And he explained how there were some night raids in a village several years ago. And this was retribution for, uh, you know, 
disrespecting their elders and their women, et cetera. And I said, well, what else did you find out? And he said, they really want their kids to go to school, but they got no, they got no school. They just have this three walled building with no roof. Uh, the girls go in the morning, the boys go in the afternoon. They don't have any chalkboards. They got one chalkboard. Um, so most of the kids write letters and numbers with the, you know, in the dirt with a stick. And I said, okay, um, would you be willing to go back there? He said, absolutely. So we'd been collecting school supplies, having people don't send us candy, uh, you know, people back home don't send us candy, send us notebooks and pens. Uh, Cause you know, we all love, we all love our children, what, what's best for them. And so we loaded his vehicles up with a bunch of, of uh, school supplies. And um, the next day, I get this call from the front gate saying, hey, there's a bunch of elders here to see you. And I asked where they were from. And he said, well, they're from this particular village. And, and so about 15 elders made several hour journey on foot to come to the outpost. And so we just started, uh, started meeting them all. And the head elder looked at me and he says, uh, hands me the stack of paper. And I said, what's this? And he said, these are thank you notes from our children written on the notebooks um, and uh, using the pen and paper that you gave them. Uh, there'd be more of them, he said, uh, but many of the kids didn't think their handwriting was good enough. Uh, so, you know, you kind of heart melts and, and, uh, and that began a set of conversations, which led to um, these elders now working together with us. Uh, eventually, we put them in contact with a non-governmental organization. They got a school in their village. They defended that school against Taliban attacks. And even to this, you know, my most recent visit in Kabul back in uh, 2018, they would make the 24-hour journey there to come say hello. So I, I think when we are willing to see an issue from somebody else's point of view, and we can repeat it back to them, and so well that they can say, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That, that summarizes it exactly right. Then we've got a basis where we can start uh, finding ways to cooperate. Uh, but if we're just screaming at each other from our own mental silos, we're never going to get anywhere. Chris, as I mentioned, you, um, you now help leaders creating powerful teams for business. We've done a number of shows on reforming American capitalism. We did one last week with Wendy Smith, a business school professor, how we can get leaders to both focus on profit and social responsibility. Do you think that seemingly elusive goal, is that something that military guys, ex-military guys like you can help? Not just politicians, but leaders of corporations and of companies. Yeah, one, of, one of the things that I've seen is uh, we've gotten away from the idea of leaders as exemplars. You know, if you go to a American military battlefield um, from the civil war, you'll see people on horseback, kind of like the paintings behind me. And the reason why leaders rode on horseback was not because they were too lazy to walk or that they were privileged. It was because first of all, I could see a little bit better, but most importantly, uh, they were the exam they were setting the example of courage because everybody's shooting at them. They're the most vulnerable soldier in the formation. And the message is, if I can, if I can stand my ground, 
while everybody is shooting at me, everybody else can too. And we've gotten away from that in too many cases where leaders are not setting the example in terms of their their values. They're not setting the example in terms of taking care of their folks. Uh, one company that uh, I was I was uh, talking with one of their vice presidents about a, a leadership program, and ultimately their their uh, company wouldn't uh, you know didn't want to didn't want to fund. Uh, you know, them improving their leaders, but their CEO makes $20 million a year. Now I don't begrudge anybody making $20 million a year, um, but their employee, their employees make, uh, I mean, a fraction of that and they can't muster the will um, or the resources to, um, you know, to, to help their organization um, get better and more profitable. It's it, too many times it's become about, you know, it, it comes down to personal greed um, and not a sense of personal service to an organization um, and, and its people. So I think you've got some companies that are like that and it's very damaging. Um, but you do have other, a lot of good news stories where, where leaders are setting the example. And I think we need more of that. As I said, um, we've done a number of shows on empathy, one with Susan McKenty-Brady on uh, female empathy, lots of other shows like this, one with Nancy Giordano on leadering, uh, ways visionary leaders play bigger roles, a lot of other books on women and leadership. Do you think old guys like you, uh, Chris, not that you're so old, do you have something to learn on the leadership front from women, is it? You, 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 you know the, the, uh, the, uh, the paintings behind you uh, for people uh, who, are, who don't have, uh, who aren't able to watch this, uh, if you're just listening. Uh, behind Chris in his home um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, there's some uh, paintings of men on horseback and women with dogs holding. Uh, should those women be on horseback, uh, uh, Chris? Well, they are now, and thank goodness they are. Um, I had a lot of brave women in my unit uh, who fought very hard, very bravely. Uh, really proud of them. Frankly, the best leader I ever served with was a woman. Her name is Michelle Flournoy. Um, and I've learned a heck of a lot from Michelle, and, and so have a lot of other people. So, you know, I think... Um, I'm not really into gender stereotypes. I think we can learn a lot from uh, people of all walks of life, um, men, women, et cetera. And um, I don't think anybody's cornered their market on good leadership. Well, your book, Leadership, The Warrior's Arts, just out, as is uh, Zero Sum Victory, What We're Getting Wrong About War, both important books. Chris, before we end, Maybe you can say something about your fallen hero on a ride. You already mentioned it um, in honor of your six colleagues um, who were killed in action in Afghanistan. What can people do to support you? Uh, oh, thank, thanks a lot. Um, and it raises funds for a thing called the Sabre Six Foundation, which helps my unit's veterans and their families uh, recover from the psychological injuries that they have. You know, they're entering the most dangerous parts of their lives. You have happiness follows this you uh, where the happiest times of your life are at the top 
you're in your mid twenties or in your mid sixties, you know, mid twenties or early twenties, excuse me, on one side and sixties on, on the other, the bottom of that U is age 47.2, according to some studies. And the people that deployed with us in the unit are now entering ages 35 to, uh, to 45. Um, and yeah, they're also entering that the lowest part of the U when they don't have that same sense of, of, um, you know, of purpose where they had in the military, that same sense of belonging that people have got my back. I've got their backs. Uh, they get me, they've got me. And so you see when a lot of people look back on combat in their twenties is the happiest times of their lives. And, um, and then when they lose that, and a lot of these uh, psychological injuries that you that you accumulate in combat, um, yeah, they yeah, you know, there's now no longer that sort of sense of purpose and belonging that helps you that help and and people that help you deal with that. So we've now lost more people to death by suicide and substance abuse. Um, in my yeah, and as I said. Um... Jason Kander, for example, in his book, Invisible Storm, Soldiers' right. Memoir of Politics and PTSD, he was picked out by Obama as a, one of the, the upcoming leaders. He's no longer in politics, perhaps because of PTSD. So this is something we've covered, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, over 7,000 Americans were killed in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Over 30,000 have died by suicide. Now, that doesn't account for the the ones that have died by substance abuse and things like that. So, so I want to help my units, veterans, um, you know, flatten that you, so to speak. So they, um, you know, they, they've got something to look forward to. It's hard to move forward when you're just looking in the rear view mirror. And when you build your dreams and you know that somebody's there to support you, um, you've got a new purpose in life and sense of belonging. You can look, to, you can look through the windshield and that's what this is all about. Uh, you can go to uh, honorride.us. So honorride, one word, uh, .us as in United States as opposed to .com. Uh, and, uh, and then you can learn a bit more about the, about the Sabre Six Foundation, the honorride, which begins in about six weeks um, and, um, and, and different ways to support us. Get back on your bike, Chris. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be pedaling here in just a little bit. <laughs>